Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 14. And um, as always, I hope that we're going to have an excellent program for you this week and um, a couple of really, really interesting guests, a lot of varied topics to, to touch on. And, um, you know, looking at some of the comments that people have left about the podcast, it really is heartening because I hope that we are providing something unique here with this show and that Counterpunch is providing something unique as far as the perspective and the critical analysis that it brings to the table on a regular basis, on an everyday basis. And before I turn to my excellent guest, I just want to make my weekly pitch for Counterpunch. Um, you know, the importance of independent alternative media, it is absolutely paramount, especially Especially these days, you know, uh, when I talked to John Pilger a couple of weeks ago and when I talked to Mickey Huff and some other people, we've we've touched on this issue. And it's just it's so important because if you're like me and you travel the landscape of the left and the alternative media, you find that it is in many ways pretty bleak. A lot of the outlets that we wish were were good and reliable are oftentimes not reliable. Oftentimes they 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 serve as an adjunct of the Democratic Party or of the uh, military industrial complex or something like this and then there's counterpunch and I'm really happy to be working with counterpunch because it truly is an alternative it truly is something special so if you agree with that and you agree with me and if you're listening I assume you probably do consider becoming a subscriber to the print magazine it's one of the ways that counterpunch pays its bills it's one of the ways that you can help support this project um, it's an excellent magazine and every time it shows up in your mailbox you're going to be thrilled with the content that's inside with with the excellent graphic design and all of the rest of it. So consider doing that. I would implore you and urge you as I do every week. But also, iTunes reviews. Those of you who have left those reviews, they are really appreciated. Help us drive this this uh, podcast up the lists on iTunes. It's really, really beneficial to spreading the word about this show and about Counterpunch in general. So all of that out of the way, after hawking my wares here, I'd like to turn to my first guest this week, the inimitable David Swanson. He is one of the best activists that we have anywhere in the United States. He's all over the place. And if you've been doing anti-war work, you've come across David, I'm sure, many times. I first encountered him years ago when I was, uh, you know, getting involved in opposing the Iraq war and the Bush administration and everything. And I follow his work regularly. I would urge you to go to his website, davidswanson.org. You can find his books there. You can find his writings, his appearances, and all of the rest of his stuff. David's really one of the best we have. So, uh, David Swanson, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Well, thank you for all of that, and I and I agree with your assessment of, of Counterpunch. It's a great independent media source. Thanks so much. Um, David, we have so much to discuss, and I want to jump right into it because, well, one of the reasons why I immediately jumped to get you on the program this week is because I came across an article that you wrote on a subject that I was about to write about, and that is this news about George Clooney and, and, and war profiteering and what, a, what all of this means. I think a lot of people have it backwards about what George Clooney is really doing, and your article, which I would just plug here real quick – 
Uh, George Clooney opposes war profiteering while African. Very, very important stuff. So let's introduce listeners to the general thesis of that article before we dig into some of the specifics. So what were you getting at? What's the point? Well, I'm sorry if I messed up an article plan of yours. I, it's the first I heard of it. Maybe we should have joined forces. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, of course, as I assume you did, saw all of these uh, corporate news stories about George Clooney and a partner of his starting up a new effort uh, to go after corruption and profiteering from war and go after the, the underpinnings of war in, in order to really put an end to it by making those who profit from and gain from war suffer because that was really the fundamental way to go at the root of the problem and so forth. Uh, and it all sounds great. It all sounds wonderful. And, you know, it makes me think, wow, all we needed was a Hollywood celebrity, and we're suddenly going to have the newspapers and the television networks looking at who's being paid to spout this nonsense about the Iran deal and who's being paid to say that you know another uh, thrust against ISIS is going to finally be the, be the successful war <laughs> effort in Iraq after these decades of disasters. You know, and who, who, is it, who is profiting uh, from this warmongering? But no, actually, if you look even a little bit closely, you discover uh, that George Clooney's effort – uh, is focused entirely on uh, a handful of nations in Africa. Uh, Africa, a continent on which a single one of the top 100 uh, war profiteering companies of the world uh, is headquartered. And, uh, and so you, you have this, uh, this imbalance where the, the wealthy nations of the world, the United States and Western Europe primarily, are making all of these weapons and shipping all of these weapons and and trainers and soldiers uh, to poor southern nations of the world, uh, and then human rights groups headed up by uh, you know members of the Council on Foreign Relations like George Clooney and uh, and funded by Democratic Party groups. Uh, are claiming to go after the problem of war as if it originates there. I mean, imagine if we treated drugs the same way and we ignored the drugs being grown in South America and Afghanistan and and went after the users. Uh, you know, and if you look a little bit more closely at this new project by George Clooney and uh, uh, and his partner Prendergast, uh, what is the guy's name? John, John Prendergast. John Prendergast, uh, who is a former member of the National Security Council. Well, it's it's actually part. This project is actually part of something bigger called the the Enough uh, Project, which is actually part of the Center for American Progress, which, as most people know, is a Democratic Party uh, based. Uh, organization in Washington, D.C. with millions and millions of dollars. Uh, and in fact, at least according to a Nation magazine report of a, a year and a half or so ago, uh, and uh, I don't know that this has, has changed, among their funders are the top war profiteers in the world, Lockheed Martin and Boeing and, and others, including General Electric and who knows how many. So, uh, so this is an effort uh, that is at least uh, connected financially to the biggest war profiteers there are uh, that is you know treating like u s academia does treating war as a problem that arises 
in Africa, yep. and not because of past Western military escapades in Africa or arms shipments or or CIA uh, finagling, but because of the the spontaneous eruption of of ignorance and corruption of the Africans, you know, and yeah. <laughs> so I, I see it as as really you know holding out a promise of something much better than what it turns out to be, and in fact potentially being counterproductive. Oh, I think I think counterproductive is uh, almost a certainty, um, and I think that you're absolutely right. And look, I've I've done the research on this. Many other people have as well. The Enough Project is a is a, you know it's it's one of the it's part of this NGO complex that we have, the nonprofit industrial complex, and it is intimately tied to finance capital. It is intimately tied to the military industrial complex, just as you said. John Prendergast is one of the founders of that, along with George. Clooney, Prendergast comes out of the government, out of the Democratic Party establishment, and out of the foreign policy establishment. He was a uh, an integral part of that circle that includes Susan Rice, that includes Samantha Powers. He is a proponent of so-called humanitarian intervention and humanitarian war. He was a member of the International Crisis Group, which gets its money from Soros and from a lot of other nefarious organizations and nefarious sources. So this is somebody who's intimately connected to all of the same forces and the same complex that is driving a lot of these complex that drove the war in Libya that drives the wars in many parts of Africa. So to say that somehow he's going to come in along with his celebrity buddy and their money and they're going to somehow tackle this problem at its root, it's a fundamental, not only a misconception, it's actually an inversion of what a solution would actually look like. Uh, I'm inclined to agree. Um, it's uh, and, and Center for American Progress is, is quite openly uh, a, a a part of the Democratic Party created by top Democrats uh, run in, in recent years until uh, recently by my former misrepresentative here in Virginia, Tom Perriello, who then went through the revolving door into the State Department. Yep. Um, it, 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 and it's not just a humanitarian war in the, in the sense that some people might have a conception of that as a, as a uh, approval of a limited uh, section of, of U.S. war making. It's, it's most wars that yeah. the Center for American Progress backs. It's Democratic Party wars. So yep. it's war everywhere except for Iran at the moment, pretty much. Yeah, and and, and, so they, I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, I was just going to say they they were pushing for war in in Syria a couple of years ago. They mm -hmm. were pushing for the war uh, on ISIS last year. Uh, they are in favor of uh, expanding U.S. military presence uh, in Africa and everywhere else. And so uh, it, it's put they are they are backing putting into Africa the the forces and equipment that cause the problems. Uh, they promote false history uh, of what's created the crises in certain African countries, uh, and then they seek to come in on a white horse as do-gooders and expose uh, corruption and war profiteering uh, as if you could take the profit out of war uh, at the local level in Africa and war would go away. 
Yeah, and what's interesting, just to illustrate the hypocrisy of this that I find so utterly uh, disingenuous, for instance, uh, one of the countries that they want to monitor for uh, the, you know, this new project, which they call the Sentry, um, is the new nation of South Sudan. And one of the things that they absolutely refuse to discuss and don't want part of the narrative is the fact that the Enough Project was one of the principal drivers for the creation of South Sudan. They were lobbying to divide the, the nation of Sudan into two, to put those warlords into power who are now fighting over territory, fighting over the spoils, fighting over the weapons and the money. They were integral in bringing the Israeli investors who helped to fund the creation of that country as well. And so it's almost, uh, I mean, it's really despicable, actually, that they would now turn around and say, well, we're here to try to solve some problems when, in fact, they were one of the principal creators of those problems. Yes, indeed. And no acknowledgement of that, no history of that in their uh, brief on their website about South Sudan, the website of the century, and, uh, and nothing about U.S. warmongering in neighboring nations in Ethiopia and Kenya and what that's uh, doing in Somalia. Uh, and if you read their, their brief on Sudan, as opposed to South Sudan, uh, it reads as an advertisement for regime change. Yes. Uh, here, here is a dictator who should be in the crosshairs of the Pentagon, and here's eight reasons why. That's what, I mean, that's what they've written. Uh, and so to, to promote the century in, you know, and it has been promoted in mainstream corporate wire service and newspaper articles uh, as some sort of a, a peace and humanitarian effort. Uh, you know, either it, it's either very disingenuous or extremely lazy. That is, reporters haven't gone and read the website of the thing that they're announcing the creation of, uh, or it is blinded by this U.S.-centric double standard where to uh, propose overthrowing a government uh, is a is a humanitarian act of philanthropy as long as you're the United States. Yeah, and, and taken from a, let's call it, sociological level, sociological perspective, it is blatant neocolonialism. Um, it, it's not just ethnocentrism. It is truly neocolonialism, this mentality that, that white-skinned Europeans and North Americans are the only ones who can come in with their bags of money and their expertise and their tech-savvy uh, uh, you know, teams, and they're going to come in and they're going to solve the problems without even considering the the fact that maybe, just maybe, there are indigenous people in these nations in Africa who also want to resolve these conflicts, and maybe, just maybe, we should think about allowing them to develop themselves politically, to develop themselves economically, to stop enslaving them with debt, to stop enslaving them with the IMF, to stop funneling the weapons and all of these things, but that would be a holistic approach of someone who's actually interested in resolving conflict rather than someone who's merely interested in the public relations. Well, I agree. Um, and I think uh, to a certain extent, looking at third world nations and how long they've been 
heavily influenced by the United States, uh, going back to uh, the Philippines, which I think you could date to 1898. They are almost worse off the more help they've had. Yes. You know, so how much help can some nations stand uh, from the U.S. military? Uh, there are millions of well-intended and, and well-acting people in the United States, uh, and there are people eager to do good in a helpful, respectful uh, way. But uh, the U.S. military is not part of any such operation. Uh, and I don't know what goes on in the minds of, of people like George Clooney. I've, I've never met him. You know, all I can say, like anyone else, is that he acts the part of a very likable guy in very various TV shows and movies. But uh, one has to assume that, uh, that he believes that very wealthy, uh, very rich, uh, and typically Western and Washington-centric uh, and, and London-centric, uh, the guy lives in London among other places, uh, know best and mean well and will do better for the world than the riffraff can manage. Uh, and, and so war by Lockheed Martin uh, and war by Boeing is not corruption. It's not war profiteering, even though the facts speak so clearly, just as Eisenhower predicted, right? That's, that's not, he's not covering that up. He's not hiding that. He's, he's just not seeing it as war, uh, as mass murder, as something objectionable. That's, you know, that's police work. <laughs> that's the, that's the global policeman coming in to help the poor people who don't know enough to govern themselves. Yeah. Uh, and you know, so, so Dave, I don't think he, he I don't think he would see himself as a hypocrite. He would see us as being completely unfair to him, I think. Yeah, and look, I I obviously don't know George Clooney either. He might be well-intentioned. Maybe he's somewhat oblivious to this. Maybe this is something he just puts his face to, although from what I've read about him, that's probably not the case. But in any event, um the point is not simply to indict Clooney as an individual. The point is that there is a systemic problem here. Look, um the president of Kenya when he was running for election, um, I guess that was last year now, um, he was essentially running on a platform against the very concept of the International Criminal Court, which only prosecutes African criminals, which only prosecutes uh, uh, localized warlords and people like that, people who are not in the halls of power in Washington, who are the real war criminals. They don't, they're not going after George Bush and Dick Cheney or Barack Obama or Tony Blair or any of these other people, and they are essentially an organ of the imperial West, more or less, and there are a lot of people in Africa, a lot of leaders in Africa, who resent the very nature of Western soft power on the continent, and I think that that is becoming more and more apparent, and the Enough Project and Sentry and all of the rest of these, including, you know, ones that are working in the Congo and ones that are working in the southern part of the continent, Continent, all of them, that NGO complex, I think are very much under the microscope and in the crosshairs more and more in Africa. Well, I mean, apart from the military metaphor of crosshairs, I, you know, I hope that that's right. Uh, and I think I've long thought that the International Criminal Court should be the ICCA, the International Criminal Court for Africans, because yeah. that's all it's been. Uh, and I think it's done a disservice. It's done a. It, it, it's lowered the the respect for the idea of international law. Uh, it, it is doing a, a disservice to the cause of justice that was pursued fairly 
honestly and uh, and well-intendedly by by some of the people who initiated the idea. Ben Ferenz, um, elderly gentleman I've met and done events with down in Florida, who's the the last living uh, prosecutor from Nuremberg, uh, you know, more or less meant well uh, and kind of sort of intended the United States to be subject to the same laws as others. Uh, I, 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 he, he's incredibly disappointed and has been for years in what, where the International Criminal Court has gone. And of course, in U.S. lack of participation in it and in its resistance to prosecuting, uh, not just prosecuting Western nations, but prosecuting the crime of war making itself as opposed to uh, smaller atrocities that are parts of war um, because this is the western mindset uh, that runs these institutions now in, including the united nations which was created uh, supposedly to end war uh, is that war itself is perfectly okay i mean we're back to a to a, a pre-World War One understanding, you know, war itself is just fine. It's it's how you do it. It's the atrocities within a war, uh, and if you are small enough and anti-Western enough and disloyal enough to our agenda, well, then your atrocities are are genocidal. Your atrocities are human rights abuses. We'll get. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch to write reports on you, uh, and you'll be prosecuted in a court of law to uphold justice. Uh, but if it's the United States invading your country, well, then it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, or even even right now in the headlines as we're seeing Turkey doing the same thing. I mean, Turkey is now in, I mean, not just now, they have been for a long time, but violating blatantly and, and nakedly international law, waging war on Syrian territory, waging war on Iraqi territory, violating their airspace, which is a, I mean, it's just a clear violation of the Geneva Convention. Saudi Arabia doing the same thing in Yemen. And these are, of course, part of the U.S.-dominated Western imperial system. And so they're not subject to the U.N. charter for whatever reason. They're not subject to all of these rules. It's only the countries, just as you said, who are anti-Western or who don't fit in to that system or who simply refuse to accept the diktats of Washington. They're the criminals. It's Washington and its allies that are above the law. Well, I think that's uh, almost exactly right. I, I, you know, there's a double standard, and if you are a brutal dictatorship that beheads people and uh, and commits all kinds of atrocities, but you sell oil to the United States and you buy weapons from the United States, it's it's all good. So Saudi Arabia or Bahrain or you know any number of dictatorships in that region get a whole different treatment from governments that are resistant to US influence but but I think domination is a very strong word and I think you know Turkey is right now bombing who the heck it wants including uh, both sides of the same war and people the US doesn't want it to bomb I don't think the US totally controls Saudi Arabia I, I mean these things these things get out of hand like uh, Donald Trump or a Frankenstein monster, and uh, and and you have to uh, you have to wonder at the recklessness with which uh, people in the State Department and the Pentagon uh, hand over more weapons and start more wars and train more killers, thinking they're going to be able 
to control the thing. I mean, these are people who've forgotten what happened when they turned Japan into a junior partner in empire, and now they're doing it again, and they think this time they're going to like the result. Yeah, and, you know, exactly. And the point is that it's not it's not about um, being able to uh, dictate every single decision that a country makes. It's about being able to sponsor the system within which these nations operate. So the United States sends CIA forces to the Turkish border to funnel weapons into Syria to try to affect regime change in that country. That then creates the, the, the potential for three years, four years down the line, Turkey to then be involved in a shooting war in Syria. So it, it, it all comes back to this same, you know, sort of imperial hubris with which the United States and its allies operate. I agree. Um, okay. I know we're running out of time, and I want to switch gears a little bit, David, because, you know, you and I talked a couple of years ago um, on, a, on a previous podcast that I used to do, and um, we talked a lot about the anti-war movement with which you were very active. You're still, of course, very active. Um, but the anti-war movement, of course, has changed dramatically over the course of the last seven years or so. And now that we're coming to the end of Obama's presidency, I think it's an important question to try to sit and, and, and take stock of anti anti-war and the, the anti-war movement in general. So um, how would you describe the transformation or maybe devolution, we could say, of the anti-war movement from its height under the Bush administration to whatever it has become today? I mean, how would you describe that process? And what does that tell us for those of us who are looking to building the movement moving forward? It's it's funny. I'm just reading a draft of a forthcoming book by uh, a bunch of Vietnam War era peace activists. Uh, one of whom, in the text, says that you know during the recent uh, wars, uh, Bush and Obama era, uh, there has been no. Uh, public movement uh, for peace, uh, and I'm questioning them. Do you really want to say no? But that's their perspective because it's so much smaller. Uh, and and so uh, what we think of as the height of the peace movement uh, in 2005, 2006, uh, was a rather low height in yeah. comparison uh, to some uh, visions of the past. Uh, but even so, uh, you know, there's been a very uh, careful study done by a couple of, of scholars they put out a book uh, called something uh, like Party in the Streets, the Democrats and, and the anti-war movement. And, uh, and they show quite convincingly uh, that really what drove the peace movement's growth in 2002, 2003, and then uh, its collapse in 2006, 7, 8, Nine uh, was its association with the Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, so there was there was a positive. You, t you know, people are so identified with political parties. God knows why. I'll never understand it, but they are. Uh, and if you play on that and you say that opposing war is a Democratic Party thing, even though most of the Democrats aren't real Democrats because they don't oppose the the wars with us, even though it's a Democratic Party thing, and you play that game, you get all these people in into an anti-war movement that's at least anti-Republican wars, as long as the president, the yeah. face of the empire, is a Republican. But then you start getting close, even close to the idea that it's election season, 
right? Like you just said, it's the end of Obama's presidency. Well, he's got, you know, a year and a half. Imagine, I mean, a year and a half is a hell of a long time, but we <laughs> yeah. think it's yeah. the end of Obama's presidency because yeah. they started the damn election. Yeah, exactly. You know, they started the <laughs> next damn election, and, and it wipes out activism, right? I'm organizing an, uh, an event in my town here in Charlottesville, Virginia, in a week uh, about the Iran deal and what we can do to make sure that Senators Kane and Warner don't kill the Iran deal. And I'll have Gareth Porter, an expert on this topic and so forth. Uh, and there's a huge crowd at an event uh, this evening as we're, as we're speaking uh, for Bernie Sanders, where Bernie Sanders isn't even there. It's a, you know, a national uh, video meetup thing. And, uh, and, you know, I like Bernie Sanders and, uh, a group I work for, Roots Action, is going to launch a petition soon urging Bernie Sanders to notice the military budget and the problem of war and start mentioning it. Uh, but this is not an event to join Bernie Sanders in pushing for free college. This is not an event to join Bernie Sanders in, in pushing for uh, taxing billionaires. This is just an event to sign more people up, to sign more people up to like Bernie Sanders. When, you know, it's a, it's a quixotic effort, and, uh, you know, I, I wish him the best, and I, and I hope his campaign you know, begins to address militarism as well as other evils. But this is what happens to activism. Uh, it gets diverted into either into nothing and apathy or into uh, electioneering. And, you know, I, I love what Oregon did recently in making voter registration automatic. I mean, it eliminates just millions of hours of work that young people think of as activism. They run around registering people to vote. It's just busy work. And then they collapse from exhaustion, you know, the, the day that we have a new government that needs to be pressured for something. Um, so... Uh, you know, we can't do without elections, um, but we don't have them. We don't have them. You know, we need to get the money out. We need to get the gerrymandering out, the ballot access cleaned up. We need public financing and free media. We need election day holidays. We need automatic registration. You know, if, if we need verifiable vote counting. If we had elections with those sort of international standards, then I wouldn't mind so much, uh, you know, if we could actually unelect the bad people and elect the good people, then I wouldn't mind so much that it, that it all gets diverted there um, because that used to be something more useful. Uh, but now with a broken election system and a peace movement that was fired up and ready to go, uh, it shut down and it didn't shut down in 2009. It shut down in 2007. Yes, exactly. And all the money went away, all the funders of – Peace activism went off to fund election campaigns in 2007. Yeah, and you know one of the things that and it was look, I mean, it was a it was a very um, uh, major turning point for me in my own political development when I realized that those people who had stood with me at protests during the Bush administration slowly but surely disappeared as Obama came onto the scene and actually turned around and started denouncing me because I was still against the wars when Obama was in office, that I was opposing it from the beginning. And it, it, it taught me a very important lesson, not only about principles and the 
importance of principles, uh, whether it, we're talking about anti-war or any other issues, but also it taught me an important lesson about how movements and the anti-war movement was controlled and how dependent it was on the largesse of finance capital on the same sources that fund the military industrial complex, whether you're talking about these major foundations that are flush with Wall Street cash, whether you're talking about powerful individual donors or what have you. And just as you said, the fact that it was so tied to the Democratic Party, that that was, I think, an eye opener. And look, you're you're I think you're nicer to Bernie Sanders than I am, generally speaking, because I think that um, when somebody who is on the record and was in Washington supporting the war against Yugoslavia, supporting the war against Libya, supporting wars against Palestinians, supporting the war in Syria. I mean, all of these things, to me, that's not somebody that uh, merits my support in any significant way. But that aside, just the very nature of electoral politics is a diversion in many ways away from the substantive issue, and that is that there is one system, and both parties are a part of it. Well, I agree. Um, and and I think a lot more people would agree if they knew more facts, uh, such as Bernie Sanders' war record, um, you know, because he doesn't talk about it. He talks about the issues well, that he's why. put on. <laughs> I wonder you know? why, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, he gets yelled at by his own uh, constituents in town hall meetings, and yeah. he yells back at them, and, and it's a problem for his campaign, and, and I hope he improves it. Uh, we'll see. But, he, but he, he won't improve it by, you know, swearing your loyalty to him uh, and then adding a little wish list he'll improve it if he's pressured to improve it but but i think the you know the biggest uh contrast for me and an example of all these sort of false narratives about uh obama ending wars while he's escalating them and so forth play out is the is what happened with this story of a kill list uh which was put on the front page of the new york times intentionally by the white house before an election yep. obama wanted the public to know that on Tuesdays, he goes through a list of men, women, and children. They were very careful to say there were there were minors in there uh, and picks which ones to have murdered, usually with missiles from drones, and has them murdered. And I just – I can't imagine – uh, that a re that that story could have come out about a Republican president, any Republican president, without this country ab going absolutely uh, upside down in, in in turmoil and the world with it. I, I mean, I just can't imagine uh, that the whole political system wouldn't have been shaken to its knees uh, by the uproar and the protest uh, and the mass resistance and non-cooperation that would have resulted if a Republican president had that story told. But with a Democratic president, you have that story in the news, uh, not disputed, widely reported for a few days, and then it's gone, and nobody has a defense for it because nobody knows about it. They've followed, you know, Orwell's prediction that the, the nationalist will accept anything his nation does. In fact, he will uh, prove extremely uh, talented at never hearing about it, never knowing about it. Uh, and, and so there, you know, people, people are just incredible in what they are able to avoid hearing and managing to find out about. Um, and uh, people who are, who are getting their 
their news from certain sources will will tell you all the crimes of all the of all the Republican presidential candidates, um, and they'll even and they'll even you know tell you Hillary Clinton's. Uh, uh, position on uh, XL pipeline and the TPP while ignoring Barack Obama, who is the president, for yeah. God's sake. Yep. Uh, but but they but they won't know uh, about crimes of Obama that have been put right in front of their face. Uh, and if you put it there, they they'll deny it. It's it's incredible to me. Yeah, and they'll, or they'll sit there and they'll they'll repeat the uh, the same propaganda talking points about Assad dropping bombs, not mentioning the fact that Obama is doing the same thing in a much more precise and much more uh, I would say sadistic way because it's not in the middle of a war zone. He's not the leader of a country that is engaged in an international war against multiple other countries. And this is the this is the false narrative that's created when we tell you what to think about a given person. They're the height of evil. When we tell you that this is the U.S. president, all of a sudden this is acceptable. The very fact that he had a kill list and that was a boost to his popularity, that was a public relations coup for the White House in an election moment, that tells you a lot not only about propaganda and how propaganda functions. I would say, and this is quite damning of our society, I would say that tells you just the, the level of barbarism that has become the normal in imperial America. Yeah, except that it's the segment of the population that cheers for barbarism that allowed itself to know about that story. Right. And the people who didn't like that story just cho just chose not to see it and not to hear it. Yeah. Um I don't I don't know if I would, you know, suggest that Assad's bombs are somehow better than Obama's bombs, but I think uh, your point about uh, the demonization of foreigners who are you know targeted by the United States is right, uh, and it got to a ridiculous point a couple of years ago when the United States was supposed to bomb Syria, and and Seymour Hersh found uh, uh, evidence that this was going to be a massive bombing campaign of Syria, not you know pinpricks as somebody said, uh, because why? Because supposedly the Syrian government had used the wrong kind of weapon had used a chemical weapon. Now, of course, the evidence <laughs> was not there, and it's very likely that Syria never did use a chemical weapon, and exactly. it's absolutely certain that the, that the president and the secretary of state lacked the knowledge they swore they had that Syria did use chemical weapons and so forth. So this was a, you know, this was a propaganda stunt on a number of levels. But regardless, the idea that you should go and bomb people because somebody used the wrong kind of weapon, you know, that, that the civilized Western war makers need to come in with our napalm and our white phosphorus and our cluster bombs and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, destroy a nation uh, with the right kind of weapons, with the good civilized kind of weapons. Uh, you know, never mind that they were lying about the incident in the first place. It's, it's outrageous to me. Absolutely. Um, well, we're out of time. I mean, I could probably go on for hours with you, David, but um, let's um, – Let's just reiterate for the listeners. You, you heard it here. This is why David is one of the best, why I like to lean on his analysis and why I was really happy to have him on. David Swanson, um, activist, davidswanson.org. Very important website to be following. Get his books. Um, I mean, offhand, I can tell you War is a Lie from 2010, one of the best books written in the last few years on this subject. So if you like what you hear from David, check out that book. Check out his recent books as well. David Swanson, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And listeners, we'll be right back with another excellent guest. Uh, much more. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and um, I want to introduce an amazing guest that I want to introduce all of you to, in case you don't know her already, um, Hafsakara Mustafa. She is a journalist and political analyst based in London. Um, I follow her work regularly on Facebook. She's a, She makes regular appearances on uh, media outlets and debates and uh, opinion pieces, and I think that she's actually one of the best um, analysts and journalists on the issues of North Africa and the Middle East and a lot of these other issues that, quite frankly, there are so few people out there that I think really provide an important and critical perspective. Um, Libya and the debacle around Libya, there's so many people who I think, at least in my mind, are utterly discredited because of some of the positions they've taken. And Hafsa is one of the people I think that uh, is really worth following. So uh, with all of that out of the way, Hafsa Kara Mustafa, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Wow, thank you very much, and thanks for the great introduction. Oh, please. All right, let, <laughs> us, let us get into some of the important, important issues here. Um, your, your background is uh, out from Algeria. You're from Algeria, right, if I'm not That's mistaken? Right. Yeah. So Algeria is an interesting country because if you, if you follow these issues of the Middle East and North Africa and the so-called Arab Spring and all of the repercussions and fallout from that, interesting how Algeria is almost never mentioned. It really very rarely enters into the conversation 
Christian. So let's just speak generally about that. Why is it that Algeria, unlike Libya, unlike Tunisia, unlike Egypt, Algeria somehow is removed from the narrative? What is the reason for that? And why is it important for us to really understand that? I think um, Algerian, the Algerian government has actually worked out that keeping a low profile is probably the safest way to go. Algeria is obviously an oil and gas-rich country. In fact, it, it really boasts a lot of natural resources, and therefore it probably attracts a lot of attention for all the obvious reasons. And I think it's worked out, and it's seen you know, in the past that, country that countries that have sort of, you know, uh, taken a very public stance on, on numerous issues, have attracted the ire of powerful nations, and it hasn't really ended up very well for them. So I think as a result, it's all turned out to be much more positive for Algeria to keep a low profile for, for numerous reasons, obviously because of the natural resources, but also because uh, in the 90s, it went through something very similar to what Syria is going through. And fortunately, because that issue wasn't internationalized, that was managed, That was uh, it was possible for the Algerian government and the army to contain it within Algerian borders. Now, if you think that uh, had it taken the sort of same, uh, t same turn as Syria, whereby it would have become some sort of Muslim cause celebre and attracted jihadists from across the world, you know, we wouldn't be talking about Algeria anymore. I think Algeria would be would have been wiped off the map, literally. You know, it would be a failed state, something very similar to Libya. And I think as a result, you know, the Algerian government and the leadership, and especially the army, which is very powerful and it's very astute as well, has actually learned from the mistakes of other nations and has, you know, decided to, to remain slightly, you know, take a slight, a slight back seat, if you want, in, in certain areas. And in particular, when the focus is so much on the Middle East and, so, uh, and, off, and on North Africa. Yeah, I think that's a great point and something that I've noted many times before as well, that before it was, you know, chic and popular to talk about a quote-unquote war on terrorism and a war on Al-Qaeda, Algeria literally fought a war on terrorism and a war against Al-Qaeda and international terror networks. And I think that that understanding, as you mentioned, coming out of the 1990s and pushing it forward till today, I think that that has really served them well. And on top of that, it was one of the reasons why Algeria developed this robust uh, uh, national security and military architecture that really has held firm despite the fact that seemingly the entire region around it has been collapsing. Absolutely. Um, I think for anyone looking to understand, the, as you say, the war on terror, which has probably become the war of terror now. Yep. Uh, but, you know, the, the, you know, the whole uh, geolo geopolitical landscape of the region, I think Algeria provides an amazing case study, both in terms of you know, how it conducted its post-independence uh, development, but also how it tackled the issue of uh, terrorism. Uh, but uh, just coming back to the point of, of what's strengthened Algeria, I think it's acquired, you know, the 90s provided uh, an incredible lesson to uh, the Algerian army. And as a result, it's acquired incredible experience. It knows how to deal with all these issues. Uh, it's got the manpower, it's got the technological and the, the sort of the, the know-how of how to deal with this. And I think as a result, it's managed to stave off. 
as 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 best as possible because obviously um you know it was of it faced the the hostage taking of Ain Amanas in 2013 uh it's it regulates it was victim of a vicious attack just a few days ago so it's it's not completely safe and it's not completely in, it doesn't have the all clear as such but more or less i think given the context given uh, the current situation across the world and given how much it, the focus could be placed on Algeria for all the reasons we know, including the resources, I think Algeria is doing incredibly well and it's very much based on the experience it acquired throughout the 90s. Yeah, that's right. And um, you already mentioned it and I think we should touch on it because it's such a pivotal moment, such an important moment. That is that uh, that hostage crisis in 2013 at uh, Inamenas, or I'm sure I'm totally mispronouncing that, mm-hmm. but um, very important <laughs> gas facility in Algeria. Um, you know, many people killed the, the whole hostage thing. I mean, it was it was a major story there for a very brief moment and then all of a sudden very quickly forgotten. But I think that it's important because of what we're seeing around the region, because at the time when I was talking about it and writing about it, I was concerned that this was the opening salvo of a real destabilization campaign in Algeria, a la, if not necessarily Libya, something like it. And that didn't happen. So I want to talk a little bit about why that didn't happen and what that incident has told us about the way that Algeria is responding, given the current crisis in the region. Well, first of all, I think we have to place it in the context of post-Gaddafi Libya. And that hostage crisis, that takeover, was very much a consequence of uh, the destruction of Libya. You know, the hostages came through the Libyan border because obviously Algeria shares a thousand kilometer border with Libya. I mean, it's all desert land at that particular point level you know geographically but it nevertheless is a border that is shared with libya and the and the uh terrorists the hostage takers did come from libya they benefited from the from the incredible amounts of arms that were you know that flooded libya by qatar uh during the uh the regime change operation and so uh that that hostage crisis is very much a consequence of what happened in libya now the way the algerian government and the army in particular dealt with it was again um I mean, it was, they were very much criticised at the time because they they didn't in, they didn't inter, they didn't appeal to international help, they didn't uh, coordinate their operation with any of the countries who had hostages uh, who'd been who had hostages taken, and therefore this was a very much an Algerian operation conducted more or less in secret yes. and as a result that was very that you know the Algerian government was very much criticised for it. But again, that's probably why the operation, I mean, there were obviously numerous people killed, but on the whole, it was a successful operation in the sense that uh, fewer people than expected died. That's first and foremost. And of course, the major gas facility was saved and most, uh, you know, most terrorists were were either killed or, or captured. So I think on the whole, it was a very successful operation. And the reason for that was precisely because Algeria didn't engage, didn't coordinate with any foreign power, did it its way, and and, and that was the result. And I think given the the success of the operation, and it's always difficult to mention success in light, of course, of the people who died, but I think the success more or less of the operation is very much down to the fact that Algeria has learned a lesson, which is when it comes to terrorism, you roll up your sleeves, you do it, you do it your way, 
and you don't listen to anyone else. And I think that was, again, that is a legacy of the 90s because Algeria was very much isolated during the 90s. But in high insight, it's realized that actually that isolation was its best asset because it allowed Algeria to deal with the crisis on its own terms without consulting without anybody, and it managed to resolve the crisis. And again, you know, 10, 15 years later, when you when you see Aynamenas, what happened, they conducted the operations in the same way, and as a result, it was an Algerian success. And no one can really blame Algeria for what it did because I think at the end of the day, this is how the operation would have been conducted by any other any other nation trying to you know resolve such a crisis. Yeah, exactly right. And I think also I would just point out for for listeners who maybe weren't paying attention at the time, this was a major moment when a North African country in a, in the post Libyan landscape asserted its national sovereignty. And I think that this is very important because if you looked at the way that the uh, that the situation in Egypt unfolded and in Tunisia unfolded, very very different than what you saw in Libya. And there was a very very real question as to what effect the uh, regime change operation, the imperial war on Libya, would have on a country like Algeria, an even larger and economically more important country. And all of those mm-hmm. weapons that flooded south into Chad and flooded west into uh, Algeria and some and and mm-hmm. uh, towards West Africa, leading to the conflict in Mali, you see a destabilization mm-hmm. effect really throughout the entire region that emanated from Libya, and yet Algeria was able to come through that. And I think that's really important, especially in light of what we've seen in the last few days. So I want to talk about that a little bit, if we could, Hafsa. Um, this mm-hmm. terror attack, Ein Defla, um, again, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but <laughs> tell us um, what happened there. Why is this important? Uh, well, actually, I think it's also important to mention, geographically speaking, where this is, because the geography of, of this uh, territory is, I think, very much part of its political significance in light of what's happened. Well, yes, I mean, this is in the north of Algeria. So this is pretty much where the where 90% of the population lives and where sort of Algerian life exists. Because obviously, if, if you look at the map of Algeria, Algeria is a huge country, but a, a 90% of the country is actually uninhabited because it's essentially desert land. And the majority of the population and the infrastructure and all the country is pretty much uh, concentrated on the northern strip, you know, on the on the border, on the Mediterranean, basically. So Ain Defla is in that part. It's it's in the north, and that means it's very close to the centres of power, to infrastructure, to all those things. That means that the attack was very much in the heart of the country. Ain Amenas was in the desert. It was very very remote. It was in the heart of the Sahara. There was nothing much happening other than the gas plants. Uh, nearby. There's, there's no, you know, population, there are no urban centers or anything. Ain Defla, on the other hand, is pretty much, you know, uh, very much part of where the entire population lives. Yep. It's in the west of uh, it's in the west of Algiers, and it's part of what was uh, referred to in the 90s as the Triangle of Death, because it constituted a sort of geographical triangle to the west of Algiers, where a lot of terrorist activity happened. Uh, this is a mountainous region with sort of thick forests and uh, hilly areas where lots of terrorist groups used to hide, basically. And there were constant uh, uh, clashes with the army. But of course, this is, you know, thick, like I said, you know, thick forestry and everything. And it's a very difficult terrain uh, 
to 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 take to take on for any military and of course because it's inhabited you know there there are numerous villages and and surrounding small towns which means that all these terrorists used to kind of mingle within the population it was very difficult for the army to uh, to tackle these groups. Uh, so you fast forward to uh, basically last week and on the day of Eid, which marks the end of Ramadan, you had a convoy crossing through and that was attacked uh, in a very, very professional operation. You know, they attacked the whole convoy and these terrorist groups actually uh, managed to kill nine soldiers. Um, a few days prior to that, ISIS, Daesh, or whatever they're, they're called these days, it's become <laughs> very difficult. They'd vowed, you know, they'd issued a statement whereby they'd state they stated that Algeria was next on the list. Now, whether this is this was genuinely an IS attack or whether this was uh, an in, uh, an Algerian group, you know, remnants of the groups that were operating in the 90s, it's difficult to uh, to tell. But of course. The groups that operated in the 90s actually merged with Al-Qaeda through Acme Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb uh, back in 2004, uh, and they've operated in tandem ever since. Uh, but the, again, I mean, the significance of this attack is obviously because it was in the north, whereby uh, they'd been actually pushed out of these areas back in but about 10 years ago, and they were only operating quite far from the urban centers. So I think this is a significant attack because it, it go it, A, it hit the heart of the army, you know, it was the soldiers, nine soldiers killed, so it was significant in size. And of course, geographically, it meant that it was near, you know, the capital. That means, you know, it, will, it was, in a sense, a way of telling uh, the Algerian government that, you, you know, you're quite vulnerable. We've managed yeah. to hit you in a very soft spot. So it, this is quite alarming, it has to be said. No doubt about it, and that's precisely the point, is that there's there's a real question whether this is the opening salvo of some kind of a more concerted uh, terror-based destabilization campaign. Certainly, I think that uh, it's something that uh, merits our attention. Now, the question that I would have, and you kind of were touching on it a little bit, look, we have terror networks that have been operating in that region for a number of years. We know actually quite a lot about them. You have the um, Mokhtar Belmokhtar network, which mm -hmm. is the so-called Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, whether or not it's directly or indirectly affiliated with them. This is a smuggling network that really runs throughout the Maghreb Sahel region. Who knows exactly how far spread, how widespread it is. On the other hand, you have this, what is now essentially an annex of the Islamic Islamic State, uh, led by um, Abdel Hakim Belhaj, who was U mm -hmm. U.S. NATO's favorite terrorist when he was overthrowing yeah. Gaddafi, now is leading the Islamic State. This has been documented by mainstream media. I've written about it. Many other people have written about it as well. There's a very real question whether that network is involved in what we're seeing in Algeria. So it seems like there's almost a confluence of terror networks, and it's not necessarily clear exactly who has perpetrated this particular attack, but it does mm -hmm. seem that there's a gathering storm around Algeria, no? Uh, definitely. I think Algeria, again, for all the reasons I've mentioned, is in the crosshairs. But I think the context of today is very different. In the 90s, uh, the attacks that came as a result of the cancelled election of 1991, whereby I think it, just to, to, to tell your listeners, it's uh, to a certain extent, it's almost similar to what happened in Egypt, although the Algerian government actually interfered much earlier on. There were elections uh, in which the fees, which was the Islam 
Islamist Party actually won the first round of elections. However, between the first round and the second, they'd vowed that although they would come to power through democratic means, they would actually cancel further elections. Uh, and as a result, the army stepped in and said, well, actually, you're, you're violating the terms of the constitution, and therefore we're declaring uh, the elections null and void. Now, these, this Islamic political party formed a military wing, which is therefore called the GIA, and basically took up arms against the government. And that is what led to 10 years of terror attacks against the government. Now, at that particular time, public opinion was slightly split. Some were, A, in favor of the feast and, that, and later on the GIA. Others were were basically split in terms of thinking, well, even though they didn't support the fees, they still thought that the fees had some, had a case at least in saying that the uh, elections shouldn't have been cancelled. So public opinion at that time was slightly split. However, in light of the atrocities committed by the terrorists throughout the 90s, and of course the change of context across the Middle East, and in particular seeing uh, Libya a failed state today, public opinion is very much in support of what the Algerian government is doing and therefore will back it. There is very, very little sympathy today for any group that would take up arms and commit any form of atrocity, which wasn't necessarily the case 20, 15 years ago. So in that sense, I think that public opinion, unlike what happened in Libya or in Syria, whereby you had locals... Um, you know, what I would call sellouts who were prepared to ally with NATO in order to destroy their country. In the case of Algeria, that is very, very unlikely to happen. A, because public opinion is supporting the government in what it's doing, and B, because it's looking at what happened in Libya and Syria and realizes that, oh my God, we don't want to go down that route. So I think there is a much, you know, the Algerian government is in a much stronger position to stave off any attack. It's very likely that it will experience some similar attacks, you know, sporadic attacks, but on a small scale, but obviously nothing on the scale of what we saw in the 90s, and hopefully not to the point where it could actually jeopardize the entire integrity of the state. I think it's it's just a question of, of the odd acts of violence, but nothing more significant. I think that that's true. And, you know, what's interesting to me also is that a government such as the one in Algeria, which um, I, th I, I recall, you know, just the, the, his the history that you were just kind of recounting for the listeners there, that's not how it was presented in the West. The media in the West presented it very differently. Essentially, uh, a dictatorship in Algeria, which was unwilling to bend to democratic will. And you've seen that this narrative has played out over and over again. But in fact, if you examine the history carefully, in fact, what what it is 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 much more nuanced than that and in the 1990s, when the United States and its NATO allies were bringing and importing terrorists into places like Bosnia and Kosovo in the Balkans, mm -hmm. when the United States was involved in uh, essentially spreading the Al-Qaeda disease in many ways, Algeria mm -hmm. was fighting a part of this war. And I, don't, and I think that that historical element to this is really central to how they're viewing all of this today. 
Absolutely. And I'll just tell you actually a, a really interesting uh, story, which is in January 1995, there was an attack. It was the only suicide bomber, uh, fortunately, throughout the 10 years. But a man took a car, you know, filled with explosive and rammed it into uh, the major police station in central Algiers. Uh, I mean, 90 people, some 90 people died. You know, hundreds were seriously injured. It was it was absolutely a massive attack. And it was incredibly uh, psychologically, I think it had incredible impact because up until then, uh, the attacks tended to be in the suburbs, in, in re slightly remote areas, clashes with the army. But this was really in the heart of the capital. And of course, it had major impact. But what was interesting about this is that uh, Abdel Qadr Hashani, who was part a military, a senior figure in the fee story, who had actually escaped, uh, had seeked asylum in the US, went on uh, American TV that same night and announced and very casually said and took full responsibility for that act of terror. Mm -hmm. you no, know, it would be the equivalent of imagining Osama bin Laden or anyone else coming on TV and saying very casually, "Oh yes, I'm the, I'm the one who just blew up and and killed scores of civilians," and you know, in a studio and then walking off. This is what happened. In 1995, he, he, he took full responsibility for that act of terror and then walked out of that studio and continues to enjoy uh, asylum in the U.S. So I think uh, there was a sense in Algeria at the time which has remained that there was a, a sense of a, a complicity, I would say, with a lot of Western governments uh, and these organizations that were creating, that were wrecking havoc essentially in Algeria at the time it was exclusively contained to Algeria. But of course, as we know now, it spread pretty much across the Middle East and, and as you say as well, in parts of, of Southern Europe as well. No doubt. And actually, you know, his colleague, um, fr some uh, some of the colleagues from Chechnya, who were also sponsored by the United States, who were also given asylum in the United States and living on U.S. taxpayer dollars, who were uh, very much involved in very similar type of operations against Russia in the Caucasus mm -hmm. region. So it's certainly not exclusive to Algeria, but a very important point. Now, I want to also touch on something else here, and this is just from... You know, we're uh, counterpunches, you know, a leftist publication. We want to also bring a, a left political context to this as well. Algeria mm -hmm. is a very, very important historical watershed for anti-imperialism. I mean, this mm -hmm. is the historic struggle against colonialism in North Africa. The struggle, you know, everybody or not everybody, but most people <laughs> have seen Battle of Algiers, a famous <laughs> film, you know, that, uh, you know, if, whether you've read Franz Fanon, whether you followed this history, you understand the importance of Algeria. And I think that that historical understanding is also very much informing some of the way in which people uh, inside of Algeria understand the situation today. Just as you said, they're not ignorant of Western complicity. Whereas, for mm -hmm. instance, in a place like Libya, the, the traitors in Benghazi were all too willing to be part and parcel of a NATO war against their own country. Absolutely. I think um, Algeria, as you say, is an example of the anti-imperialist struggle. I think in the 60s and 70s, it was really the platform where, where all the, you know, the major figures of an the anti-imperialist struggle used to come to Algiers. It was, you know, it was basically the Mecca for revolutionaries. And that has remained a source of pride for, for, for a number of Algerians. And there is this sense in Algeria that, you know, 
whatever we do, it, it, it has to remain within our borders. You know, we have issues in Algeria. There, there are issues to, the, the, to be content with. And, and, and I think Algerians would complain about all sorts of little daily things. But when push comes to shove, you know, this is a nation that was born in pain and in blood and it came at a great cost and therefore we really need to cherish it and we do not tolerate uh, you know anyone coming in and meddling in our affairs and i think that's remained very central to um how you know how we deal with international matters and as you say that is a major difference between how algeria dealt uh, with you know potential foreign meddling and how the Libyans did, because for some bizarre reason, the Libyans were all too happy to actually invite pretty much the most heinous figures. I mean, people like Bernard-Henri Lévy, who yeah. is noted for going around the world and, and, and forcing people to, to go to war and creating. I mean, he's, 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 he's done it in Ukraine. Yeah. He did it prior to that in, in Libya. So he's a notable figure for that kind of destabilizing. And yet the Libyans welcomed him with open arms. This is the price they're paying. They've they've literally lost their nation as a result. And I think because we're in Algeria, we're all too aware of those risks and risks, and we know, you know, how difficult it is to obtain your nation as a result of a bloody long and difficult war. I think we've managed to learn the lessons of the past. And, well, I think you know, remain protective of our of our borders, basically. Yeah, and I think that the important point that needs to be stated is uh, Libya also had its you know its post colonial struggle and 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 Gaddafi's rise to power and overthrowing a colonial uh, quizzling government the, of King Idris and all of that. But in Libya, you had a decades long campaign of subversion. The CIA had penetrated that country with you know now a very important figure there, General Hiftar, General Haftar. Yeah. whatever his name is yeah. exactly, however we need to be pronouncing that. You had a whole segment of the population in Benghazi that was, if not directly, at least indirectly, on uh, Western payrolls and were really acting in the interests of Western imperial countries. Mm -hmm. So there was, and in Algeria, you don't have that. You have a much more, uh, um, let's say, um, strenuously resistant government and resistant society that has not allowed itself to be penetrated, just as you said at the beginning of our conversation, they do it their way and no one no one dictates to Algiers what is going to happen in Algeria, and I think that that's fundamentally important, especially given everything that's happened in the region. Absolutely, but but again, I mean, although, you know, they've had Omar Mokhtar, who is a major, you know, uh, anti-colonial figure, and, you know, he, he, his name resonates with all Libyans and everything, the they didn't get their independence through a long and painful war in the same way that the Algerians did. And I think that's very much central to how Algerians view themselves and their identity. You know, this was a seven-year war. And just to reco recap, this came... Uh, after the the defeat of Dien Bien Phu for the French, yes. once they lost that in such a humiliating way, you know they doubled their efforts on Algeria. They could not afford to lose in another humiliating way to another what they would refer as backward, savage people. You know, they'd been defeated in, in Vietnam already. They couldn't possibly face another defeat to Algerians. And therefore, 
the war was vicious. It was genuinely vicious, the scale of torture, of rape. There were concentration camps. This is another chapter that is so little, no, there's no, is not known across the world. You know, entire villages were placed in internment camps uh, and people were forced into, uh, famines were, were, were forced on people. So this was a very, you know, the birth of the Algerian nation, regardless of what anyone says today, came at a very, very, very heavy price. And I think as a result of that, there is this sense of national pride and identity that people cherish. When push comes to shove and there are issues, you know, with the government, with people, you know, people clash here and there. But when push comes to shove, if a foreigner comes and tries to push you around, you will not have that which didn't happen in Libya. Libya, they had one, you know, one figure, which, you know, the history of Omar Mokhtar is slightly diluted in lots of other stories, and therefore they never really cherished their independence in the same way that Algerians have for the best part of 50 years. And I think the result is, is telling in the way Algerians deal with foreigners and in the way with Libyans have dealt with foreigners. Yeah, I would agree with that. Now, um, we're running out of time, and I want to shift a little bit and talk just briefly, if we could, about the situation in Tunisia. I know that you follow Tunisia closely as well, and it's interesting because, you know, uh, Tunisia in many ways, in, in the Western media especially, is held up as some kind of, you know, a banner achievement of the Arab Spring. And, and, and you know, it's kind of interesting because they'll they'll hold it up as a, you know, as a landmark moment of the glory of the Arab Spring, and then on the other hand, totally suppress some of the really nasty things that are happening in Tunisia. So let's talk a little bit about that. We've seen some high-profile terrorist attacks there recently, mm-hmm. attacks against European targets and tourists and you know high-profile uh, uh, incidents. So what can you tell us about Tunisia, aside from just the terrorist attacks, what's happening in terms of the society and in terms of the politics in that country? Because I think it's really uh, not getting nearly enough play. It's a very complex situation in Tunisia because I think that the initial, I mean, the initial spark of what was would become the Arab Spring came from Tunisia, and I think that initial spark was very legitimate. There were very, uh, the situation was very, very difficult under Ben Ali, not as much economically, I think. Uh, on the borders and in the major city, I think Tunisia was doing well. And on paper, uh, you know, the figures were very promising. But of course, uh, further south, there was abject poverty and all the money that was generated was really serving a very small clique of uh, government-connected people and the people pretty much in the borders. So there was resentment and there was a good case for people to rise up. The middle classes in Tunisia were actually probably craving the freedoms you see in the West, of free press and all that kind of thing. So you had a mixture of elements of why Tunisians wanted to get rid of Ben Ali. But of course, as soon as they got rid of him, the only uh, political party that emerged that could have been a uh, uh, in opposition to him were the Islamists of Al-Nahda. Now, it has to be said, despite all their shortcomings, they, they made the rather judicious uh, decision of actually stepping back, you know, stepping, taking a step back from power and allowing new elections and a new system to come into, into power. And I think that in itself was a good and uh, patriotic decision in the sense that it's, 
helped the country not go down the civil war route, which we've seen in, in Libya, which we've also seen in Syria, of course. So I think that was a positive step. But there were remnants of Salafists who were close to Anahda, who've seen this as a betrayal and who have therefore turned against the government. And I think these are the elements that are now committing these atrocities. They've seen this decision by Anahda as, as an act of treason uh, in favor of a truly secular government. And as a result of that, they're attacking the institutions and the aspects that are most important to Tunisia, which is basically the tourist industry, which represents the backbone of its economy. And that's pretty much what's happening today. Well, and they've and because of all of those political circumstances, they have sort of been made into fertile ground for recruitment for the Islamic State and for many of the other terror groups. And actually, if you look at some of the statistics, Tunisia per capita is providing one of the highest rates of the terrorists that are going into Syria, that are fighting around the region and I think that that is quite telling not only of the way in which the politics has developed but uh, really some of the social um, uh, fractures that exist within Tunisian society at large. I think so and I think that is a very alarming development to note that some of the highest numbers of recruits are coming from Tunisia. It's, it's, it's actually quite bizarre because we tend to associate Tunisia as being a rather secular, very open-minded right. uh, society and, and, and although you know there is a strong religious identity which is which was allowed to reflourish again after the fall of Benley because he was really tightening the screws against any religious expression uh, that was allowed to flourish again and you would have thought that that would have provided the use with the outlet that they craved for so long under the Ben Ali regime but of course it's turned slightly you know the the they were allowed to 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 develop and to to act freely but the mixture of the Anahda government coupled with the influence coming in from Libya sort of made for a very nasty cocktail. And of course, the poverty, because in the immediate aftermath of the fall of Benali, tourists also once again shunned uh, Tunisia. It was seen as unstable and therefore the tourists had were not returning. And that sort of led to an increase in poverty. And of course, poverty coupled with turmoil, coupled with, you know, influx of arms flooding in from Libya, all these ingredients make provide the reason why so many Tunisians have decided, you know, that that probably was an alternative to what was happening in Tunisia, in, in you know, in their home country. So I think there is, it's almost like, as you say, a perfect storm of all the reasons that would encourage unemployed, disconnected youths who who are in a, an environment that favors this kind of jihadi behavior and this is what's basically led to to so, so many of them traveling today in Syria and of course and I think this is not held by for instance the decision of the British government which sort of very drastically announced you know no more travel to Tunisia therefore literally breaking the tourist industry in half overnight because that means that it's going to have a domino effect lots of western countries are going to refuse to travel to Tunisia which provides some up to some 40% of the workforce in the country and again that really is going to favor a rise of of the whole sort of jihadi sentiment first a betrayal from the west second of course poverty leads into that and there you have it. You have all the ingredients that are going to push lots of youth into the arms of ISIS and, and company. 
Absolutely right. Um, I want to just close uh, the conversation, and I, I hate to give it such short shrift because really we could do a whole episode just on Libya, but we do have to talk about Libya just because I mean it's such a it's such a tragic episode, really. I mean one of the one of the really saddest uh, um, I think chapters of recent years is what's happened to Libya. Not only the imperialist war that destroyed that country and the aftermath of it, but the the civil war that's going on there now and that it is that is almost totally blacked out in the media. I mean, there's almost no mention of it. You have to really look to see what's going on in Libya. So uh, right now we have competing factions on the one hand in terms of the battlefield. You have ISIS and some of these uh, extremist terrorist groups that are led by Belhaj and others mm-hmm. who are remnants of the NATO-backed Al-Qaeda networks that overthrew Gaddafi. On the other hand, you have the former CIA asset General Heftar and his National Army, as they call it, and uh, there's an increasing sense that this is really the the fundamental characteristic of the civil war. However, you also have a political conflict that's emerged. You have essentially a fractured country now, one capital in the east in Benghazi, another capital in the west in Tripoli. You have competing factions that, that want to be called the legitimate government. You also have all of these tribal groups who don't recognize any government at all. So it seems like what we're seeing is the essentially the de facto breakup of Libya as a nation state and certainly not a surprise to anyone who's been following it but I want to get your take on it uh, do you agree with that analysis and uh, where do you see this going is there anywhere to go but further down I I couldn't disagree in any way possible I think you've uh, outlined the situation in Libya perfectly well and I think it's a fractured nation it's a failed state today it was held together by Gaddafi you know everything that is happening was expected with a power vacuum that followed you know his brutal removing this was this was expected that there's no surprise whatsoever we had the example of Iraq 10 years before that but of course despite all the problems in Iraq in terms of the sectarian issues it remained a much more homogenous nation because of course Iraq was a strong nation for many many years Libya is is basically a collection of tribes and even if you look at it historically across the Arab world it was never very much that sort of shining Arab nation state and it's very much held together by Gaddafi thanks to his social program and thanks to everything he did with with, with obviously the backing of the oil revenue um, today as you say very you know as you outlined perfectly it's completely fractured and I can't say a way I can't see a way out it has to be said however that there is there are two reasons why uh, the mainstream media is completely ignoring the issue. First, there's an element, I would suspect, of a certain embarrassment Absolutely. to note that Belhaj, who was uh, who was pictured with McCain, who who won uh, one million pounds in compensation from the British government, who was the sweetheart and flavour of the month of the British and the American government at the time when he was fighting Gaddafi, has actually pledged pledged allegiance to ISIS. So I think there is deep embarrassment because of that. But there is another aspect, and this is one that very few people speak about. It's immediately when the supposed uprising started, the first decisions that were taken by Western governments, as you recall, 
were to were to freeze uh, Libyan assets. Now, from 2007, when the prices of oil went up, uh, Gaddafi literally went on a shopping spree. You know, the coffers were were bursting, and the through the Libyan Investment Authority, uh, Gaddafi went on investing in all sorts of operations, real estate, uh, buying shares. I mean, even the Financial Times, even the Pearson Group, which owns the Financial Times, actually the Libyan Investment Authority owns shares in that. They're very minimal. I think it's just uh, somewhere like under 2% or something. But nevertheless, so Gaddafi, through the LIA, invested in in incredible areas. And of course, the minute the assets were frozen, this means that all this money is made available, and obviously the interest that it generates, all this money is made available to governments. And the less they speak about it, the less there's transparency and accountability. Uh, the LIA boasts something like $67 billion uh, of investments across the world. And because we don't speak about it and because, of course, there's no stable authority to return much of those assets to, then the longer the situation festers, the, the, the longer the money remains in, in Western coffers. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I would add one other point that I think is really important and why it's not discussed, and that is because the the um, – in the let's call it the imperialist war, which is what it was, the imperialist mm. war under the auspices of so-called responsibility to protect and humanitarian intervention and humanitarian war, everything that has happened since then completely undermines that narrative. It completely delegitimizes the very concept of R2P responsibility to protect, which is the basis of Samantha Power's arguments in the United Nations. It is the basis of the Obama the Obama era's neo colonial wars mm -hmm. throughout the region. So to talk about Libya is to talk about not just a failure in that country, it is to talk about the moral, political, and ethical bankruptcy of responsibility to protect, and quite frankly, the de facto imperialist nature of such a policy. Without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, every aspect of what happened in Libya was based on a lie. It was based on deceit and it was designed to create the situation that we see today. Everything was predictable. Everything was predicted and everything was done. Nothing was done to avoid conflict. Uh, none of those who offered to broker peace, uh, as you'll recall, Jacob Zuma was literally forced to fly back to South Africa because the pounding operation started as he was flying into Libya in order to attempt some peace deal between Gaddafi and the uh, the opposition. So as you can see, there were no efforts whatsoever to actually bring about a peaceful resolution to a supposed burgeoning conflict. The idea was to go in, as, as Hillary Clinton very openly stated, to go in, to destroy, to kill, and then laugh about it. And that's pretty much what was done. Exactly. And the final point I want to make on that too, and to bring it up to today, Libya also reminds us of the danger of the way in which the United States and its allies operates under the cover of humanitarianism, under the cover of preventative anti-terrorism or whatever they call it. Remember, Resolution 1973 was a resolution for a no-fly zone. As Absolutely. soon as that was passed, it was seen as a green light for a war on Libya. Literally, as we're speaking right now, Hafsa, uh, we have a very simple 
similar drive in the international community to institute a no-fly zone over certain parts of Syria. Now, mm-hmm. if anybody has any historical perspective, they should immediately see the danger of such a policy, regardless of what they want to say in terms of arguments in favor of that. No-fly zone, just as sanctions, are really simply the first steps towards all-out war. Very much so. I mean, we know that these are these have just become uh, vacuous words, words that are used to sort of throw about to public opinion through a complacent, uh, through an accomplice media that basically attempts to sell wars, and they use it with these buzzwords, you know, no-fly zone, humanitarian intervention, what it actually means, anything but. It means all-out war, it means destruction, and it means the pillaging and plundering of the wealth and the sovereignty of nations. Excellent. Thank you so much. That's a great point. I want to I want to end it there. Listeners, you've been uh, you've been listening to my conversation with Hafsakara Mustafa, journalist, political analyst based in London. I would urge you if you're on social media on Facebook, you should be following Hafsa's work. Uh, it's really top notch. Some of the best. Um, Hafsa, thanks again for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you very much for having me. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Listeners, thanks as always. And again, um, please do go to iTunes. Give us those positive iTunes reviews. It helps us to push this push this show up the charts. And um, what can I say? Thanks again, and I'll see you all next week. <laughs>